Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Mike Ramsey. Um, Mike Ramsey is releasing a book called, why don't you introduce the name of our book for our (laughs) listeners, Mike? It's called My Dad's a Muslim, My Mom's a Lesbian, and I'm a Latter-day Saint. And that is book is going to be is available hopefully by the time you hear this podcast at Desert Book Siegel at Amazon. Yeah, it'll be on Amazon and then also uh, signed copies at MikeRamsey.org. Um, and the purpose of this podcast is really to um, talk about the book that Mike's written, why he wrote it, and this very unique um, title that he just introduced. But by way of background, Mike is active LDS. He lives in Burley, Idaho. We're recording this at our home in Salt Lake City, so Mike's in town with events connected to this book on a November day that we're recording this. He has four kids. Um, he's a marketing guy. He owns a couple marketing businesses, um, served a mission in England, Birmingham, so we have some common ground there um, since we both serve missions in England and we both have careers in marketing, except you're 35 and I'm 58. <laughs> um, so... This will just be Mike sharing his story. So take us to just introduce your family situation growing up when you're eight years old. Let's just start there. Tell us where you're living and who's in your life. Do you have a mom and her dad? And just talk about where you are when you're eight. All right. Uh, So at eight years old, um, I was an only child and I lived with my mom uh, and it was just my mom and I. So uh, to, to give a little bit of background on that situation, uh, my mom got pregnant in college at Utah State. She had met a group of Palestinian young men really? that were traveling and studying abroad. And, uh, and so my father uh, was full Palestinian. Which, that's, that's where my curly hair and and olive skin that my wife so loves comes from. So that's <laughs> uh, great. So anyhow, um, she she met him. She uh, she was she got pregnant. You know, as they were dating, and at that same time, she was really questioning her own sexuality, and um, that was largely because she had a uh, professor that happened to be a lesbian. And my mom started to realize that she had much stronger feelings for this professor than she did for for men in general and, and for my father. And, of course, that was very confusing for her. And so uh, as as that continued to progress and as, it, it, you know, she, she was dealing with those feelings, she decided that she would break up with my father uh, before she knew that she was pregnant. And then she came to find out she was pregnant after she broke up with him. And also at that time, just really came to the conclusion that she was uh, a lesbian. And so, uh, the, the outcome of that was she, uh, basically fled, not, not really fled, but left Utah state to come home to Burley, Idaho, where, where we're from and had me and then, uh, and that was done in, in secret as far as she never let my father know, uh, that, that she was pregnant. So she had me and then she went back and finished her degree. And as a baby, I stayed with my grandparents. Wow. So, so at eight, by, by eight, my mom had finished her degree. I, we'd, we'd moved around different places. She'd, she'd gotten her degree in special education. And so she'd worked in, uh, Utah and then American Falls, uh, we'd lived in Pocatello and we had just moved back to Burley. 
and she was teaching at the junior high. She was running the special education department there. And, uh, that, that puts us there. Um, were you in a religious home at this point, Mike? And tell our listeners the name Ramsey. Where does that come from? And Mike. Okay. So um, Mike, my mom just liked the name. And she spelled it M-I-K-E-L because she said that that is the way that Michael should be spelled. And people just call me Mikkel. So I don't know if she was right or wrong, but but it's Michael. Uh, and Ramsey, Ramsey is from her line. So she, she never changed her name where she was never married. Uh, my my line goes to right to Scotland, and early early saints. Uh, we also uh, that that Ramsey family line was was um, part of. I'm trying to remember their names now. Oh, we've stumped you. Yeah, no, it'll I'm, come back to you. it's a yeah, long sessions. podcast. There we go. Sessions it came back. <laughs> so so the Sessions family and Peregrine Sessions, which was one of the original settlers of Bountiful. That was like, that was my, my family line basically. So, you know, on this one side, we have this really strong pioneer heritage and Peregrine Sessions, the stories about him are just awesome. Like to, you know, took a tar coat for Joseph Smith. He was kind of one of the bodyguards. I'm fairly confident to say he was a day night. I'm, I would be shocked if he wasn't. Uh, and, uh, and anyhow, then we have that line and then we have the Muslim Palestinian line. So very different lines in my family tree. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. So your mom comes from obviously a long-term LDS family. Was she active when you're eight years old? No. Um, so my mom grew up and my, my grandpa was a bishop twice, once at 20 and probably the other one late thirties or forties. Um, and very active home. She had, uh, multiple older brothers and she was the youngest and she was the only girl in the family. Uh, she did not have good experiences in church in general growing up. So by the time she left home, she was done at Utah state, zero activity coming home, zero activity. She's really never been, been active. And over time has became more and more, uh, disenfranchised and, and largely upset with, with the church. So by the time I was eight, she, she had no good feelings about it. Um, fair amount of, of anti-Mormon literature was shared with me and that, you know, she enjoyed looking at, uh, and were the grandparents active, her parents, yeah, yeah, they, were they, was they, there, do you remember tension as your grand, as your grandparents were trying to get you to go to church and your mom didn't want did, to, yeah. your grandparents <laughs> just let your mom drive that, you know, my, my grandparents did try to, to get us involved, uh, of course. And like they were successful in getting me baptized at eight. And my, I don't think my mom was very happy about it, but it wasn't until a little bit after that, that she, she really became fairly hard on things. Um, so even though I got baptized Did, about who, the only time, you? my grandpa, okay. um, about the only time I had any involvement with with churches, if I was like staying the night at their house and it happened to be a Sunday, you know, and, and they would, they would drag me along outside of that. Um, my mom is a very spiritual person, uh, with, with a lot of different beliefs, you know, even beyond Christianity in general, you know, she's a fairly universal, uh, thinker around religion. And, um, so I was always taught that there was a Supreme being from her, but that, that was about it. You know, there wasn't really 
religion, and she she tended to to talk a lot about how a, many problems come out of organized religion. You know, that's that's something that she's fairly passionate about. Is spirituality is important in her mind? Religions, not so much. And is your dad in your life at all um, in your teenage years or even oh. starting at eight? No, so um, he did. He still didn't know about me. He actually, he, yeah, he, he never knew about you. Yeah, he didn't know about me a, until thirty. You know, totally, totally other story in the timeline. So, yeah. um, but at this point, no, no dad, um, single mom. I at, at eight, I did not know that that she was a lesbian. Um, so she was just being a single mom, you know. And I always thought she didn't date or do anything, just because it's hard raising family and working and you know, she was busy and, and also she's a, quite a private individual. And so it was just me and her, you know, and, and talk that's how about it was. when she came out to you. So and how old you were and just how that all went down. And so we had, uh, eventually by fourth grade moved back to Burley, um, from, you know, these different places she was. And, and then by uh, right around age 10, um, my grandparents would sunburn, sunburned in uh, St. George. And so it was just my mom and I at, at their house in Burley. We'd all, we were all living together at that time when we first moved back to Burley. And one night, you know, normally we just eat in front of a TV. That was kind of the deal is we're eating in front of a TV and the TV's off. And my mom was like, Hey, I need to talk to you about something. And she just, you know, she looked at me and she said, I'm gay. And she, had tears in her eyes, you know, when she was telling me this. And I just remember looking at her and I just burst into tears. And at that time I didn't like, I had this overall idea of what that meant, which was that she didn't like men. She liked women, but I mean, I was young, so <laughs> I didn't have a very good idea at all. And it was just like, I, I, I can't explain it as anything else other than just having like my world turned upside down because all of a sudden that meant all these things that I didn't know. Like I didn't know if that meant that she would, um, if that was illegal, I didn't know if that meant that I could live with her anymore. I didn't know if that meant that I would be like that. I didn't know you know, the, the questions and just the thoughts went on and on because like I had no frame of reference. I, I didn't know if that was okay or not. And that was basically the extent of our conversation at that point was like, this is how I am. And I could tell that it was so hard for her to tell me that. And where she was crying, it just immediately came across to me in the form of like two things. And that was fear and shame. And I just immediately took that on. Um, and you know, she, she told me, you've got to realize we're in Southern Idaho, you know, <laughs> in the nineties. And so this is a time before people knew that there were, that gay people were actually real and not just in San Francisco, because if you were to ask anybody in, in Burley, Idaho at that time, they would have said, no, you know, that's, that, that's not even a real thing. <laughs> and, and so like, it was so secret. And, and like, I just remember being afraid. Um, and so the next day I go to school and the thoughts are just bouncing around in my head. And 
um, I sat down at my desk and just started bawling. My teacher took me out into the hallway, asked me what was wrong. And of course, you know, the, my mom tells me not to say anything. The first thing I do, my mom's a lesbian. You know, I, I tell the teacher and like the look on her face, it's like this instant look of more shock fear and, and shame more fear. And I'm just like, fear, shame, like immediately more. And they're like, well, we got to go talk to the principal. And so now I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell I have no idea what's going to happen, you know? And I, I wish I couldn't, I don't think I've ever cried so hard, you know? And it was bad. Cause like by fourth grade, this isn't something you want to do at your desk. Um, and so finally we go down we talk to the principal. They were both very kind. And I'm so grateful for that because I think if that would have gone differently, it could have really messed me up and also my mom. Um, my mom was a, a special education teacher at the junior high uh, at the time. And there was a lot of fear. Like, could she lose her job for that? You know, at that time, I think it would have been, it would have been very likely she could have. But both the principal and the uh, teacher just said, you know, they brought my mom in and, and me and they had a meeting and I just sat out in the hall. And it seemed like things were going to be okay coming out. Um, so my mom was pretty livid at me for sharing and she drove me home. And so I got to take the rest of the day off. And when I got home, I just laid, I I just remember she dropped me off and went back to teach. And I just laid on the ground and stared at the ceiling like all day. I didn't move. And as I, it, it was like quick stages of grief. Right. And my thoughts went from all of this fear and sadness to just straight up anger. And it was a hundred percent directed at God. And I just remember like almost shouting at the heavens at age 10, you know, like why, why? And, and it's so funny because I already, were you already mad at God for not having a father? Yeah. I think, I think there was always a little bit of that. Like I always felt, you know, I always felt different. Uh, you know, there I knew other kids that came from single households, but they usually at least had a dad in the picture. They were from a divorced family and they were spending split time. But like if people asked, you know, people would always ask me, oh, you're a Ramsey. And and the Ramseys in Burley are kind of like well-known, um, a, a f- you know, 50 plus year business in a small community. My grandpa was a fairly big deal in the town. And so people would always be like, oh, who's your dad? I probably know him. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> well... My dad is a Palestinian. Here's his name. And, uh, you know, and they would just, and like, I couldn't even share that. So I'd have to be like, no, no, my mom's a Ramsey. And they'd be like, oh, so where'd you get your last name? And it was just always this like, like cat and mouse dance around this issue, you know? And so like, there's, there was all those things that I just absolutely hated talking about. It's honest. Um, <laughs> and so largely we just hid those things, you know? Uh, and so you're angry. Yeah. Lots of anger, <laughs> lots of anger. And that's kind of been my default throughout my life from that time. Right. That's how I dealt with, uh, not being in control is just through being angry. And, and so like at that time, I pretty much closed my heart off to God for a very long time. And I had a lot of anger build up. I even remember having these conversations with people as I was getting older. Like, you know, I was an atheist because 
not because I didn't believe in God, but because I was mad at him or something. It's like, I'm not going to believe in you because look at this life you gave me. And I just wanted this different life, right? That's like the epitome of, of shame, right? It's, it, I, I just, I was so mad at the situation and I just wanted to be from a normal family. Um, but I wasn't. And I never talked to anybody about it. I mean, my mom and I had those conversations and like that next night when she came home from work, you know, by that point I did get off the floor. We ate dinner in front of the TV again. Things went back to normal. Uh, and we never talked about it. Like, I don't think I had another deep, detailed conversation about homosexuality with my mom until after my mission wow. from that time. Wow. But, you know, she still, uh, within a couple of years, she was dating and she was dating women. And... That was hard. One, because my mom was my best friend and she was the one that I'd spent all this time with and it was just me and her. And now all of a sudden she was gone on weekends and, you know, and I was kind of with the grandparents or they, they would be watching me and she would be out. And then she uh, met somebody that was a little more than just the average uh, occasional date. And this is where Tina comes into our life. And Tina was also from a very strong um, Latter-day Saint community from a town just about 10 miles from us, Oakley, Idaho, uh, farming, farming community, you know, and, and she, she was raised and went to church the whole time, ended up going to Rick's college. She fell in love with her roommate and they ran off to San Francisco together. And then things went really downhill for her very fast. And she ended up in drugs for a lot of years. Um, and then by the time my mom had met her, she had been clean and very actively involved in NA for like, I think she had her tenure chip. Wow. Um, so, so like some of my first memories of hanging out with Tina and my mom were actually going to NA campouts and NA meetings. So, uh, needless to say from childhood. that, yeah, fr from that, I like, I could tell you a lot about the, the challenges around drugs and, and, um, and people's stories. And I was never interested because here I was sitting around a circle, you know, as the only kid in the room, uh, <laughs> and, and listening to people's life stories on how they were dealing with their own struggles in life and handling that with substance abuse. Right. And so, uh, happy to say that that was one area that was super positive from Tina coming in to our lives was that, you know, I definitely didn't get involved in drugs. <laughs> so, Do you know why at age 10 your mother told you she was a lesbian? You know, I think the main reason was she was like, she had been in survival mode up until we moved back to Burley. It was just hard life, like barely scraping by, going to work, coming home. I was still young, so I had my own needs. She was working with special education children, so like, it was difficult, you know, and I think she was in survival mode and just almost like suppressed her sexuality until we were living back with my grandparents and life kind of smoothed out and became normal. And then about that time, she started realizing she didn't want to be alone. And so I think part of the reason of talking to me was that she was ready to find somebody. And that was like one of the steps in moving forward to find someone. And, uh, and that's really what happened, you know, after, yeah. after she talked to my grandparents and to me, that's when she started, you know, 
getting out more into that community, even though there was, I mean, I call it community, but in, in Burley, Idaho, there was, I don't know. Are your grand, I know your mom's <laughs> in your sixties. Are your grandparents alive? Um, my grandpa passed away about 10 years ago. My grandma is still alive. She's still alive. Yeah. She's 90, 90, 93. You've got longevity going for you, she Mike. She does. Yeah. She's not, she's not quite as healthy as president Nelson. <laughs> Seriously. But she's still going. <laughs> Did your parents cut off your mom? You know, they're raising now. I mean, it's like having your parents, your grandparents on the podcast. Yeah. They've got a daughter here that's had a child out of wedlock with a husband who's gone. Now she's dating women, raising you. Did they cut her off and or did they try to keep her in the family so circle? So my grandparents are wonderful people. The way my grandpa dealt with it was lecture, right? Like like he dealt with it through lecture. I mean, that's and but he's the type that he's like, I'm going to sit you down, tell you exactly what I think, and then I'm going to just support you, right? I'm going to love you. Interesting. And that was his. That's his way. And he's he he was and is a wonderful man. My grandma is just like the type that was like, okay, don't tell anyone. <laughs> that was more of her approach. And and she has always loved and supported my mom. But it was just a subject that, like, if it was brought up, she would change the subject, yeah, you know, her whole life. That's generous. And so, and, and like, even living with them, I never, ever, ever had a conversation with my grandparents about my mom, ever. Like, they never brought it up to me. When I moved in at 14, they didn't talk about it. Left on a mission, you know, any of the things, it was just never brought up. Um, but, but it was interesting looking at our two families. Like, we had the crannies, which was, Tina's family, and then we had the Ramses, and which Tina was, and Janet are still together. Yeah, we'll this talk is about that. Yeah. So they've been together for oh yeah twenty years yeah. plus. And uh, and when when like when Tina was first kind of introduced to my mom's family, the Ramses did not take it well, and it was like you know lecture from grandma and grandpa. They knew years before the rest of the family knew, and like. Her brothers, my mom's brothers, very some, some are active in the church, some aren't. Um, some came over and kind of like tried to, I don't know if just explain themselves and their thoughts and feelings about it to her. And some of that went okay, and others it didn't go very well with my mom and Tina for, you know. And there there was this like family trip that we would always go on to fly and be ranch middle of Idaho. It's out in the, like just out in salmon river. You know, the only way to get there is by a, a plane or a boat. And, That's uh, cool. and so all the Ramses would go there and my mom wanted Tina to come. Here's this first big confrontation, right? With the family, the Ramses were like, no way, <laughs> you know? And my grandpa was like, Hey, I'll pay for her to come. So it shows you, him that I think that shows my grandpa really well. And the family still was like, no, we don't want to say that this is okay for the kid. We don't want the kids to think this is okay. So she wasn't invited. Tina wasn't invited. And my mom didn't go. Um, that was this one fly and be experience. Now, eventually there was another year and down the road, she, she, she did come and she, 
even made it into the family picture, right? So there's this, like, the start of how they were accepting Tina into the family was, like, you know, non-acceptance. Over time, I think it's been a totally different story. But after that first experience where they turned her down, we stopped doing things with the Ramses for quite a while. Like, we were kind of kind of cut off from the big family group, and there was a lot of hurt feelings. Now, the Crannies, on the other hand... Um, their parents, uh, same activity level in the church, their kids, some were active, some weren't just same, you know, very similar family, but there had been a lot of heartache in that family, just hard things happening. You know, a daughter pregnant in high school, um, kid goes on mission, comes home, decides he's done with the church. Uh, you know, and I, I don't know if it was ever discussed as to why. And, um, there was, Let's see, there was one uh, daughter that was was killed in a car accident. There's like just, it was like struggle after struggle after struggle for these parents. And eventually, Grandma Cranny um, was like, I don't know what to do. You know, what am I supposed to do? And the apostle, uh, Elder Haight, lived in Oakley. He's from Oakley. That's right. And so he'd spend like July's there. And so they knew him. And she set up a time to meet with him and just, you know, explain the family situation and was like, well, what do I do? You know, what, what's your advice? And he said, just love them. Just love your family. And they took that to heart. And so like, we were fully accepted into the cranny family from, from day one. And even though it was like, it was super awkward for me because I, you know, here I am already in an awkward situation where I was kind of like a step grandchild and I didn't grow up with the other cousins, but they treated us good. And we were not only invited, but practically expected to be at every family activity, you know? And, and it just like those two stories showed me what works and what doesn't when it comes to how we need to treat people in our families for various choices. You know, I think, I think it's really easy to talk about being empathetic and accepting right until we're talking about our very own flesh and blood. And then we have too high of expectations. And, um, and so that's, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to be able to look at your own kids that you have all these dreams for, or, you know, look at your parents who you have expectations for anything else and, or even yourself, probably mostly yourself and allow yourself to not meet those expectations and still love and still accept and still support. So we so, spell the last name cranny for our listeners. Oh yeah. C-R-A-N-N-E-Y. And are any of those grandparents alive? Yeah. Yeah. They're all alive. They're all yeah. alive. Yeah. We're still going to family reunions. You know, I love a theme I've heard from moms of LGBTQ kids is they sort of want permission to love their kids, but they get conflicted. If this is this sort of condoning or enabling, or am I crossing a line? And um, I love what Elder Hate said. Yeah, and, and moms know how to do that. Yeah, and it's sort of like you just gave her permission to what came naturally. And you've got tears in your eyes, and I've got tears in my eyes because of that conversation with other hate that fundamentally changed. But I think it's what Grandma Cranny, Cranny, 
always wanted to do with her daughter, Tina. Yeah. But then the impact on you, I'm struck with the tender feelings you have. Are you 15, 16, 17? This pre-mission? Yeah, this is all pre-mission. So, I mean, but that just started to feel at 12. feel like you belong in yeah. this family. You're, yeah, you're a step-grandson, I guess. Yep. Um, and, and, and I was meaningful. the only one. I was the only, the only step, step grand- the only step-grandson. And it wasn't even like people didn't know what to call me. So like they would still, it was kind of like, oh yeah, this is kind of like, I guess our nephew or, oh yeah, this is kind of like my cousin. <laughs> and and that was how, how it was explained because at this time marriage is definitely, you know, um, gay marriage is not allowed in Idaho, but my mom and Tina had had this like, uh, you know, not a secret wedding, but like they just did a little ceremony with friends and, and, um, you know, and ex- exchange it. So in their mind, they considered themselves married and they did joint tax filing. So, wow. you know, I guess, but it still wasn't a legal binding thing, nor have they ever technically been legally married even to this day. So talk about, this is a bit of a tangent. Just talk up to our listeners about your journey to become active in the LDS church and serve a mission in England. All right. Um, so this is, this is where it gets hard uh, because my, I think, you know, when, when we talk about children of, of those who are LGBTQ, it is hard. Like it's hard. I I don't know any other way to explain it uh, other than my own experiences of growing up. And I have to say it was extremely difficult to have that and trying to be reconciled, uh, or trying to reconcile my faith. And so, um, I couldn't really handle both. And I noticed that where I, I didn't talk, you know, I did zero counseling. I was probably a big mistake. Um, I didn't talk with my mom about anything. And so a lot of anger and frustration was coming out towards, towards to my mom and Tina as I start becoming a, uh, you know, pubescent teenager. And, and then by 14, I had a huge fight with them and I, and I told my mom I hated her and I moved out of the house and I moved in with my grandparents um, Ramsey Ramsey's these, the Ramsey's and that was like awful in so many ways. And then awesome in so many others, because here I was unable to handle myself and my life and my feelings and my thoughts. And I needed a safe place to just figure out who I was. And that was my grandparents' house. I mean, it was, I, I needed to be away from the situation, um, at that time. And so I, I was safe there. I was safe to try to, you know, almost like how my mom was safe in my grandparents' house to, to finally embrace her sexuality. I was safe to embrace, you know, not only my sexuality, but also my thoughts on religion and everything else and figure out who I was. And so I lived there and, um, I started out fairly against the church, to be honest. And I remember having arguments with my friends many times, you know, uh, on different anti things I'd either learned from my mom or that I thought myself, but I had a group of friends that were, uh, active in the church. And over time they, you know, I would go to a farewell or I would be invited into a home or just these different experiences where I started to realize and feel things that I didn't think were necessarily possible and were against my ideas on what the, the church was. And so it started to become this positive thing. Uh, 
I didn't take seminary my freshman year, but by my sophomore year, they were doing the Old Testament. And I was like, hey, that's safe. You know, this isn't, this isn't Mormon stuff. This is safe. So I signed up for seminary. And it was a good experience. And so I did the New Testament. And so by my senior year, it was the Book of Mormon. Um, and like I, I goofed off. Seminary was the release time in Idaho like it is in Utah. So like my friends were in there. It was, it was fun. And, you know, I goofed off and I, I, I learned a little. <laughs> but it was safe, right? And so I was starting to kind of come around on my thoughts on religion in general. And, and I had other friends. Like I went to a Methodist church camp with a friend. And that's where I think I kind of cemented my idea that I believed in, in Jesus Christ. And then as, as time went on, there's always this question about the church. Like, what was I going to do about the fact that I was baptized into this church that I've somewhat been disenfranchised with? And I was trying to figure out where to go to college. And I wanted to go to either Utah State or BYU-Idaho because I had lots of friends going to BYU-Idaho. I put in applications to both. I got accepted to Utah State. BYU-Idaho, I was not accepted because my state president forgot to send in his ecclesiastical endorsement. And I was like super mad about it <laughs> because he, he missed up, he missed it up or messed it up. So, um, I talked to my Bishop at the time and was like, Hey, you know, this, this, I, I was thinking about going here and I mean, I was hardly active. I'd gone to church my senior year. It was probably maybe once a month. And, um, and he's like, listen, I will get you into the school. I'll get you in, but you have to commit. If I, if I make this call, you've got to go. And so I like BYU, to BYU-Idaho instead of Utah State. And at the time, Utah State was my top choice, but I was so mad that I was like denied to the easiest school on earth to get into. And at this time, like they accepted anyone, member or not, and I got denied. <laughs> and so like... So it was almost out of like, yet again, the functioning of my life of anger of being like, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll go, <laughs> you know? And so split decision, I decided to go. And because I was there now, it's like a church school and I've really got to figure out what I believe. And so I'm taking this Book of Mormon class and I had no idea what the Book of Mormon was about still at this point, like no concept of it being what it was. I had, you know, I couldn't tell you anything about it. Um, other than there was a guy named Nephi, probably that's about as far as I would have gotten. And, and so I had to read the book of Mormon really fast in this class. I, it was like a book of Mormon class, right. That I, that I had to take my, my first year there. And I read it. I read it for the first time and I read the whole thing. And as a matter of fact, for the class, we had blank pieces of paper and we had to write down chapter headings, like first Nephi chapter one, and then write a little like sentence about what it was about all the way through the book of Mormon. We had to memorize what every chapter was about. So, I mean, not only did I read it, I had to like study it and really understand it. And I did, I read it. And as I was reading, I just felt like, all of these puzzle pieces in my life started falling into place. And like I had my hangups about Joseph Smith. I had my hangups about church in general and, and my thoughts, but like I couldn't deny that I was having this like immensely spiritual experience reading the book of Mormon. 
and I loved it. And it, it was like the first time I felt like I was with my father in heaven, you know? And like through doing that, I just couldn't deny it anymore. I, I just knew it was, I knew it was right. And so I went from all of this confusion about religion to just really believing through reading the book of Mormon. And so of course, with that happening, I was like, Oh wow. That means I've got to like, if this is real and if this is true, I, I need to, I need to go on a mission, you know? And I immediately felt that not so much out of obligation. Clearly my mom didn't want me to go. My grandparents would love if I went. Um, but like I wanted to, because like, like Lehi talks about, you know, first Nephi chapter eight, verse 12, he's like, you know, as I partook of the fruit, um, I desired for my family to also, I desired that same thing. I wanted to share it. I just wanted to share. And, and so like I immediately switched to that and I never had a patriarchal blessing. I didn't even know what that was. And so, you know, I get a patriarchal blessing while at college, never hearing that there even was such a thing. And I wondered if I could go on a mission, you know, and that answered that question. And I just knew I was going, which then kind of brought me back into this like confrontation with my mom. So for the past several years after I moved out, my mom was still in my life. And like from 14 to 15, we didn't have much of a relationship by 16 and and high school. It was like coming around, right? Like it was still hard and there was things we couldn't talk about, but we, you know, we could talk and we could go and do things occasionally together, but it was always like super sensitive. And so, you know, coming to actually believe in the church and talking to my mom about the fact that I wanted to go on a mission. Now, all of a sudden it was hard, you know, and, and this is where the, the, the back and forth on religion came and, I mean, I remember when, when I was going to be set apart as a missionary, um, you know, like it was just, it, it was like I was dying to my mom. It, it was more like she was going to a funeral because she was so afraid that I was going to come back intolerant and a different person and that she was truly losing her son. And I would love to say that that wasn't the case, you know, but you know, why? when I came back, like I was so ready to knock the homosexuality out of my mom with doctrine (laughs) and, and tried and failed so miserably and realized like through this and, you know, here I was home from my mission and so excited about all of this spirituality that I'd gained and all of this empathy that I'd shown all of these other people, but yet I couldn't show it to my mom. And I was like, you you know, this is the doctrine, mom. Like you need to do this as a missionary would. Right. And I remember after one particularly hard argument, Tina came and talked to me and just said, like, you've got to stop doing this. You're killing your mom. You're killing her. And like, it hit me. And I had this experience where I was looking at Tina And I was overwhelmed with the fact that she had more Christ-like love for my mom than I did. Which was super hard to feel as this guy who was like 
a fairly legitimate Pharisee at this point <laughs> of saying like, I'm the religious one. I'm the one that sacrificed all this time for God and went on a mission. And I'm the one who knows the scriptures and I know what it means to be Christ-like and you don't. I mean, after all, you're gay. And yet here she was and she, she did. She had more Christ-like love for my mom than I did. And that was a huge changing moment for me of just realizing that maybe my black and white views of how this world worked weren't necessarily right. And, um, so, so anyhow, uh, that was like the first little chip into starting to actually deal with my mom's homosexuality for me in, in ways that I felt like God was starting to push me down this path of understanding. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it's a really good part of the story. Yeah. Um, pretty honest reflection. Did having a gay mom make you a better missionary in any way? Do you feel like you had, <laughs> had more empathy or understanding or, um, it sounds like, you know, when you got back, there was some work to do just on how I, uh, do you, but do you, is, I, I was, yeah, I mean, I, I was an actor through high school and in college I did a lot of theater and different things. And I always like had really good control of words and I always felt pretty proud of how how I turned out and how I could talk about things. Right. (laughs) And so like in the MTC, I really thought I was going to be a great missionary, you know, because I, I learned the discussions, the ideas around them really fast and I could talk, I can talk and I just had a good understanding And one of the MTC instructors wrote me this letter and he was just like, Hey Mike, you're really good in all the ways of the world. And then just rebuked me for like four pages on my pride, (laughs) you know? And I was just like, you don't know anything. I'm going to be great. Um, I had spent so much time halfing or like to just defending my faith to my mom. And the reason why I wanted to go on a mission and these things that like, I never struggled to talk about what I believed in and why I believed it. And I, and I had a lot of those areas fairly worked out. Um, I would probably say that empathy though was an area that I struggled with. Honest. And, uh, and did, did my mission help? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I became more empathetic, but, but you know, like we talked about a little earlier before the podcast, uh, empathy is is interesting because, you know, a person can be empathetic in some situations and then not in others at all. And I see it a lot. Um, I see it a ton actually. And it was easy for me to be empathetic towards those I was teaching on my mission and way harder to be empathetic towards my own family, towards my mom and towards myself. So I think that's like an epic lesson that Heavenly Father's taking me on through the course of my life is like learning to have that empathy for my mom. And, and it's been through hard lessons, you know, but it was, you know, my, my struggles were locked pretty deep in there. So I think it took a lot of hard lessons to kind of unlock it and get it out. Um, it's a great podcast. There's some great, every podcast we do is different. This is different <laughs> yeah, and very unique, but very enlightening. And thanks for just being so honest with some of the things you've 
you know, in hindsight, you've recognized you've wanted to improve on. I've done the same thing, especially on this subject. I just didn't do it at your age. It took till my 50s before I kind of better understood. Uh, talk about, did you think you would be gay? So if I'm going back to your 10-year-old, 11-year-old, yeah. 12-year-old, 13-year-old self, and you're not talking to anybody about this. You're just on your own. Did you think I'm going to be gay? Yeah, I mean— that was definitely a legitimate uh, concern at 10. Like I was like, does this mean I am? And, and <laughs> the, you know, that, that was like immediate thought. Well, my mom is, it's just like a hereditary thing. <laughs> right. And, you know, it, it became very apparent quite quickly as I started going through puberty that that was not the case. Right. But yeah, I mean, it definitely crossed my mind and there was, and there was some, some fear around it. And like the other thing is I think people might consider or would say, Hey, if you were raised by two lesbian women, you were probably quite a feminine person. And I, it would, nothing could probably be farther from, from the truth. And I've seen this as I've gotten to know many people who are gay and lesbian and, um, even other kids from those situations, everybody's across the board on everything. There's no one size fits all on anything. Children of gay people, uh, the, you know, gay people in general, lesbian people, as far as how they look, act, who ends up wearing the pants in the family, who doesn't like, it's funny to kind of see how that even played out with my mom and Tina, right. <laughs> and how they, uh, and how, how they shared traditional men responsibilities versus women and how, and, and like, it's just unique and, and there's no one size fits all, but yeah, there was fear. And, and then as I got older, there was also fear that I would have gay children. And I was like, you know, it's honest. I, yeah. Uh, of, and, and it's interesting. Cause at first I, I did have that fear. Cause I was like, man, this was a hard thing for me and my mom. Um, now I'm in a totally different place on that. Totally different. But you know, 10 years ago, it was, so you could have gay children. Oh yeah, well, yeah, for sure. Like I, I have no idea yet. They're too. They're way too young. Yeah. <laughs> but but how Mike of ten years ago would have handled that compared to how Mike today looks looks at homosexuality in general is one hundred percent different. Did either your mom or Tina um, want you to be gay? Did they try to make you gay or expose you to things that? No, no, were, not at all. Were they? I mean, my mom, my mom and Tina, you know, they're, and I don't really think yeah. you can make a gay child, by the yeah, way, but, yeah. but like, one of was the things that a... I, that's one of the things I pick up in society is if you're raised by gay parents, they have an agenda to make you gay. Yeah. Like the thing that my mom and Tina are more than anything else is accepting. They have gay nieces. They, they have a, a nephew who is gay and they have a niece that is now a nephew who is transgender. Right. Um, and transgender with a woman and they, uh, they also have nieces and nephews and me who are active in the church and as, as straight could be as married. Right. And they have people who are on all sides of everything. And what I've seen them be is accepting. Yet again, it was hard for my mom to accept me going into the church. But I even think for that, for her, that was probably one of her hardest things to accept. 
she did. And she allowed me to go. And she wrote me while I was gone, even though the first few letters were brutal. Oh, they were hard. But like, but they allowed me and they saw the good and they accepted the good and they just ignored the parts that they didn't like about that, you know, about the mission and, and they've accepted my family. They've accepted that we've continued to go to church and that we teach our children about church. They've just been accepting because that's what they wanted. They wanted to be accepted. That's fascinating. And so I've, I just feel like that's, you know, she, she's a lover of people, no matter who or where they're at in life. Talk about a plane ride home from England. I'm pretending you're going to have this in your thought, but now you're coming home from England and you're going to date and you want to marry a woman, go to the temple and raise a family, but you've got a pretty unique background for a conservative Southern Idaho world. Did you <laughs> yeah. think, you know, no one's going to marry me. I've got, I've got, I don't have a dad that's in my life. I've got, you know, a, a lesbian mom. She's got a partner. Will anybody want me? Yeah. Did you think that? You know, and, how did, and if so, how did you navigate that? And tell us about your wife and I believe her name's Hillary and why that was not obviously a deal breaker for her. So in high school, it was much more of a concern for me that like, I didn't want people to know about my mom. Sure. And so I was like a closed book, dated girls for basically a, a day or night at a time, right? Like go on a date, done. Like I just didn't allow people to become very close to me other than like my guy friends, you know? And even, even I, I don't think they were ever around my mom much like ever. Uh, then when I came home and all of a sudden now I'm in the situation where I'm wanting to date seriously, there was a girl that I was super interested in, uh, Hillary, and we'd known each other all growing up, um, from four, well, from 14 on, but we hadn't dated. She was like a school friend but I became really close with her brothers. They were good friends. I roomed with two of her brothers, one that was older before I went on a mission. And then after my mission, I roomed with another one that was much closer to my age. And like her family was probably like the first younger functioning, um, Latter-day Saint family that, that I spent a substantial amount of time in their home with like, you know, we're talking like the six plus kids, everybody's involved in every activity and, you know, dad's in bishopric or something like that type family. And I loved the handies. They were just good people and they loved living the gospel and they were accepting. They were accepting of me and, uh, and I was invited I was just invited to, to, to their things. And so like, I think that that really played into how much I liked Hillary because her family meant so much to me. And, and she was part of this family that was so good to me and she was so good to me. And there's never been a moment where Hillary has done anything but, but like show love for, for my moms. Um, but there was times where like, even though we were friends during that time, we dated right when I got home from my mission and I would have married her as a matter of fact, like I, yeah, I would have in a heartbeat. Only problem was she had a mission call, which was the worst <laughs> wow. because yeah, she had a mission call and I was ready to get married and she had it before I came home from my mission. 
Uh, she asked me on a date, like last letter I got from her was like asking me on a date and we were sitting around. So I was in the office at the time, uh, my mission presence there, there's a few other elders and sisters and like, I'm reading this letter and it's like, Hey, um, you know, Hillary, uh, it, it says like, Hey, uh, when you get home, I want you to come with my family. We're going to go see this play. You know, you could be my date. Like the missionaries are all cheering, you know, we're like, yeah. And then my mission presence, like elder Ramsey, it's because you've been so obedient during your mission that this is happening. And then we read a little further down. She's like, I've got more exciting news. I just got my call to Arequipa, Peru. And everybody's like, no, it's <laughs> almost like, it's almost as bad as getting a dear job. Yeah, it was like it was a double whammy because it's like, yeah, we're going on this day and I got my mission call, you know. And so uh, so anyhow, I, you know, she we, we date really seriously to the point that I know we were both considering marriage and both feel that like it's not the time she needs to go on a mission. And so we don't break up, but it's like a releasing. I don't even know what to consider that when like somebody you love leaves on a mission. You know, I feel bad. I understand how all of those women and now many more young men are feeling as more women go on missions. Um, it was rough. I was ready to be married. She left for a year and a half and I dated other people. Right. And everybody I'm comparing to her. And I remember there was a couple um, young women in particular that I was, you know, I dated decently seriously. And as I would try to talk about my mom or as I would like, I just struggled letting them in to, to, to come to see that situation. Even then, this is after my mission, you know, it was just still hard. Um, and so, uh, so, Hillary did come home. We dated, we got married and there's never been a time where she's done anything but been like absolutely gracious to my mom and to Tina. Are Hillary's parents, the Hendys alive? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Did you sense, I think you've answered this, but did you sense, cause some parents kind of want their kids to marry fifth generation Mormons with, yeah, kind of a church resume and a standing in the community, and here you come along, Mike, and you yeah. don't fit that mold, and you're going to marry their daughter. Did you feel reluctance from the Handys, the, you know, <laughs> Hillary's parents, to date you and to marry you because of this? Because you just came from a different background. You know, they loved me, and I think it was a huge benefit that they saw me grow up from about fourteen on. I traveled, they, they take these international folk groups out like dancers and band members and things to all these festivals. And in the summers we'd be gone for a month at a time. Like we went to Italy my senior year for a month. And I, I mean, I, I lived with her parents that whole, that whole time. And I spent a lot of it with her dad in particular, cause me and him got along so well. And so I think that was a blessing in disguise because they knew me and I don't think they had literally any fear about it. It's cool. Um, and how did Hillary have any fear about that? It was never discussed. If there was, it was never discussed. I think that, I think that, you know, the hardest part isn't necessarily the fact that I, I have, uh, you know, I had lesbians for moms. It was the fact that I was an only child. And like, when you marry into a family, you get all these brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and all that. I have none of that to offer. Like, 
you know, we don't have family reunions. It's just me and my mom and Tina. <laughs> and so like what really happened is the handies have somewhat embraced my mom and Tina into their activities. Really? Yeah. Yeah. As, uh, as a matter of fact, we did, we did a big trip, um, with the handies where we went on a Disney cruise and my mom came along. Um, and it was just the handies and my mom. Right. And so they've been good. They've been really good about that. And we all live in Burley. Like everybody's, everybody's right within a few miles of each other. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, it was never an issue with them. There was only one time that I was an issue to, to, uh, claim Christina handy. And that was when they thought their daughter might not go on a mission. And that was unacceptable to them. <laughs> they thought if, if she would have stayed and married me, I would have been on the bad list because in that family, the, the, the women went on missions. It wasn't, they forgot to mention that it was only a commandment for the men. And he just basically said, it's a commandment for all the kids. <laughs> I talk about, um, would you, I there's a few questions. One is tell us why you decided to write this book. Okay. So, um, I, I stepped out of my responsibilities in my companies, um, on like a daily basis, a few years back and had time. I had time to think and just reflect on life in general, like the things that had happened uh, to me up until that point. And I've had a fairly, I guess, dramatic life. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good, a good phrase for it. And like, I was <laughs> this one day I was sitting with my father-in-law and my brother-in-law and we were just talking and my father-in-law had just had an open heart surgery he's like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty special. I've had, you know, I, I'm like one in 50,000 who's, you know, had this surgery. I'm pretty special. Just joking around. My brother-in-law's like, you know, I have this winking. He has, when he bites down his, he winks. It's like an extra nerve or something. He's like, I have this thing makes me like one in 5 million or something like that. And I say, I was trying to figure out how I could one up them. And, you know, they both had pretty good things. And I was like, I don't have anything that good. And my mind starts racing. And I'm like, well, my dad's a Muslim. My mom's a lesbian. And I'm in, at the time, I was like, I'm a Mormon. That makes me one in seven point some odd billion people. <laughs> and like, we all started laughing, right? And I, I sat there for a minute and just thought, oh, that is actually fairly unique. And, and then I started, I started looking back on the story and looking at was hap what, what had been happening in our church around policies, conversations, people, ideas, family, just everything. Right. And I'm just seeing like this emergence of, of homosexuality becoming a major point of conversation for many families, you know, in some way or another. And I realized that my story was a story that needed to be shared. And I think I had had so much shame for so long, so long that as I was finally learning how to let go of that shame, it manifested itself in the form of, of writing the book. Like I knew that it was almost like for the level of depth of shame that I had growing up and for, you know, how I felt, and for how wrong I was, 
about a lot of those feelings, but they were legitimate feelings that I had from the experiences I had. It was almost like the counterbalance of that was the need to absolutely share this story as far and as wide as I could to help other people realize the importance of one, like letting go of their own personal shame in their lives and two, showing them this, this path that just goes all over the place on feelings, on thoughts, on experiences and lands in a place of understanding, not only of understanding for my mom, but like a different and better relation with God, a different and better feeling about myself. You know, the book, the book, while it centers a lot of things around homosexuality, it's also just a story about me finding me and finding my God and finding my mom and finding love and finding forgiveness and, you know, ultimately just letting go of fears and shames. Sounds like a love story. Yeah, yeah, yes. Talk about why, this is a leading question, Mike. Talk about why you're a better father because you have a gay mom. I don't know if that's true. I think, I think it's probably true. Yeah, no, I think that over time. And maybe a better husband. Yeah. Um, I know I there's a couple things there. One, I didn't have a dad. I didn't have a dad growing up. And I wanted one really bad. And so... <sighs> while my mom's both compensated so much for that and did so many things, I still wanted a dad. And so because I am a dad, I, I don't take it for granted. I don't, you know, like I have a lot of friends that would rather hang out with each other and go and do things, you know, basically avoid their kids as much as they possibly could. And I'm quite the opposite. Like if I have the opportunity to do things with my kids, then that's what I choose first and foremost. And then I, I make time for friends when I can't do things with my kids because like I, I knew what it was like to want a dad and not have one. Um, so, so I think that that was like an unattending consequence of, of, you know, of growing up. Um, but then also, in time and it took time for this, but just like, I think my expectations for kids are just a little different. You know, I was, uh, I basically took a path that was a hundred percent against my mom's wishes. And yet we have a better relationship now than we ever could. Do I want my kids to follow, you know, as we talk about in the church, the covenant path? Yeah, I think, I think that's great. Sure. But I will say this, I'm okay if they don't, because it's not my choice. It's not my choice. I cannot make that choice for them. And I think that's the one thing that I've came to understand more than anything is that I have no control. I can teach. I can help understand correct principles. But when it comes to them governing themselves, that happens no matter what I do. And the only thing that I'm required from God to do is teach and then love, right? It, it says nothing about if your kids don't do this. I mean, Heavenly Father, who is perfect, he is the perfect Father, 
lost a third of his children in a way that's 10 times worse than anything else we're experiencing on earth now. We're talking like truly losing, absolute loss of, of children because they're sent to outer darkness. You know, they don't get bodies. They don't get this idea of progression or even being able to be around Heavenly Father again because they chose a path that was so contrary to the nature of the universe and the way that things had to work, right? And I'm sure he mourns for that, but he is perfect. And yet, did he have a 100% retention rate with the covenant path? (laughs) No, and yet we feel like we need to as parents. And that's like our main hope in life and all of our fears and all of our sorrows and all of the struggles in life as parents come down to the fact that if our kids don't take it, but guess what? It's like eternity's a long time and our kids made enough good choices that they get bodies and they're here and it's going to work out for them. And if they don't take the covenant path in this life, there's a long time ahead of them to get back on any path that they want, regardless of of what we know now as being right, wrong, or indifferent. Half the stuff I think there's plenty of things that I think that I've I know I've been wrong about. So so I'm just okay to let people be them. And I've came to understand that people do the best with what they have. They do. I have yet to meet a person that's like, hey, you know what? I I'm gonna choose to do half my best today. Like, I'm going to make that choice. Like, I know this is my best, and I'm actually going to choose 50% of that. No, like, you talk to anybody, and they're doing their best. It might not be what we think is their best, but they do their best. And so as a parent, I think I've came, I've came around on that. And there's still times that, like, of course, I want, I want this for my kid or I want that for my kid. But overall, I just have a different view. I just have a different view on it's a what, good view. what it takes. Do your two moms, are they involved in your kids' lives? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That Games, right. sports games, babysitting, um, meals. They come over every Wednesday for uh, babysitting. Do you that will influence your kids you know, to be LGBTQ? That, um, that is one that I think a lot of people would naturally say, right? They would be like, hey, this is a fear. Like if, I've, if they're around, are they going to promote this in a way that doesn't? And truthfully, I don't care. I don't care. Because if my kids are gay, if one of my kids ends up gay, I am so glad that they will have a grandma that understands what they've been through. What a great answer. <laughs> what what better way to help them guide something so difficult, you know, and be able to come to be okay with their self, with themselves faster than having that example, you know, and I don't know if they are or not. We'll see. Do you think your kids, I, I think we both know the answer to this question. I, I'm just going to make a statement, see if you agree with it. I don't think your two moms would have an Ability to influence the sexual orientation or gender yeah, no, that, and, kids. And, and that's something that I just I I think has been a fear for many people for a long time is that like influence is what leads to somebody being gay or not. And it's like, you know what? Here's what I've came to understand about sexuality in general. It's a spectrum. If a person is full out, full blown gay, 
It doesn't matter what anyone does. They are gay. And all they need is people to help them understand how to navigate life. Like, and that could navigate them away from the church for them to be in a healthy like place mentally and physically and otherwise, or it could lead them to be active in the church. That is up to that individual. That is up to God and that individual. And, and just like, we just do not understand enough to be able to try to step in and, and truly judge that situation. It is a personal thing. And so I, I don't, I don't think, and I'm, I just, I don't, I don't worry about that. I love that answer. Great answer. I wish I'd been there when I was 35. I could have said a lot better things to people if this conversation <laughs> came up. Yeah. So part of the reason I'm doing this podcast and everything I do is atone for the past. Um, <laughs> Me too, <we're> all, right? <laughs> yeah, we're all trying to do a little bit better. Talk about before we went live, you shared a pretty personal story um, that now I'll have you tell the story and then it plays into this overall narrative. But yeah, and it's a, it's a feeling that I think a lot of men feel in the church sometimes when there's a leadership change or um, just a feeling outside of a leadership change that we're going to be the next leader, we're going to be the next bishop or elders quorum president or whatever. And you had some of those feelings and they didn't come to pass. So just share, yeah. you know, I because I, I think there's a lot of people that have those same sort of feelings. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just backing this up, like let's, I'll do, I'll do this justice, I guess. Uh, so I go on my mission, I come into the church and I'm like on fire and I, uh, I, you know, as a missionary three months into my mission, I'm training four months into my mission. I'm a zone leader six months into my mission, or I mean, sorry, a, a district leader, six months, I'm a zone leader. And, you know, by near the end, I was an assistant. So like this idea of leadership, I was told in every experience I had from patriarchal blessing through my mission that like, you know, I was, I was special and I was a, a leader and I'd, I'd, I'd had all these experiences really fast and I was told leadership would come really fast. And so I come home from my mission and I still have some of those experiences where, um, I I'm just being asked to do all these different things and through blessings from various individuals and, um, other blessings and, and my own revelation, um, I have this experience where I was trying to figure out what to do for work, you know, and uh, it's a, it's a longer story. The book covers most of the details, so I'm not going to go into Good, a, please. a ton of that. Good. But we want, yeah, uh, we want people to read the book, <laughs> but part of it was like getting this answer that I, and I was in the temple and I felt so strongly that I needed to move home to Burley and I needed to start this internet marketing company. And I saw the vision of it, like, and the words that came to me, like were literally exactly filled or, or fulfilled. I mean, going to my black and white view of revelation, like it was exact what I was told exactly came to pass. Well, there was another part of this revelation that was like the whole reason that you will be doing this is because you're, you will be called as a bishop. You need to be in Burley to be called as a bishop. That was this other half of this revelation. And so like, here I am back in Burley and I'm seeing exact fulfillment of half of this blessing the business 
just explodes. And the vision and seeing the down to the building in downtown Burley, like came to pass. This is the best way to say it, it came to pass. Um, and then I have all of these experiences that just lead me to think that I'm going to be called. And, and so we move back to Burley and my bishop gets called as the stake president. And like the second that happened in state conference, I just have this overwhelming feeling. It's like, see, I told you. Right. So I'm like, oh, yeah, everything's lying. Everything's falling into place. All of this already fell into place. This is why I'm here. And, you know, then I watch other people get called. <laughs> and I was shaken. I was really shaken the first time that happened. And I didn't know what to do about it. And I, I prayed earnestly and I talked to uh, some leaders that I trusted. Good. And. I felt a lot of shame about doing that because we're kind of told, you know, don't talk about this type of stuff. Well, I'm just going to tell you that did me no good. It just led to depression. And so, um, I, uh, I talked to him and, and, you know, as, as, as we're talking, it was like, I was given the scripture about Nephi, um, where he's like, I don't know the meaning of all things. Nevertheless, I know God loves his children. That was basically the answer I was given. I was like, yeah, I get that too. Right. And then I was told, but you need to go give your wife a blessing. So I do. And in this blessing, because she was struggling too, she had the exact same feelings at the exact same time I did. So yet again, I looked at that as like a second witness. This is happening. Sure. Doesn't happen. Um, so I give her a blessing and it was one of the sweetest experiences I think for both of us, there's some very personal things I won't get into, but part of that was like, Hey, the reason that these things have happened, the reason you felt this way is because it's to prepare you. You felt this so that you would be prepared in five years time to be called. Right. That was the feeling. And we both took that and we both just spent five years trying to, become perfect. I don't know how, what other way to say it. and feeling inadequate every step along the way, because every day you're like, well, you know, Bishop wouldn't do that. And like, and so this is this feeling, right? And, and then the five years comes and I had no question. Like I knew it was me because every revelation up till this point in my life had came to pass. So, you know, I had my counselors picked. I knew how I was going to change this and that. Like, I mean, I'd spent five years planning this out. And I didn't get called. And I was literally devastated. I don't know any better way to say it. And like, it, this seems so trivial for some people, but you've got to realize my whole life, all I wanted was a father. It's all I wanted. And God had became my father. And I communed with him. And I felt like I was lied to. Th that's how I felt. I felt like I was abandoned. And, and then I was like, well, it must be me. I'm the problem. And then it moved to, well, no, it must be God. You know, I've never had good luck with dads. <laughs> and then it was like, no, it, it must be the stake president. And it must be this. And like, it was just this cycle of like deterioration of my faith and my trust 
and my hope that led to the deepest depression I've ever been in in my life. Because all of a sudden, this entire frame of reference that I had been building over all of these years that showed me how the world was and why I was a member and all of this, like literally just crumbled down in front of me. And it came because it's not because I wasn't called as a bishop. It was because I received revelation that did not come to pass. And I did not know how to handle that. And I didn't know what it meant. And I didn't get it. I didn't. Um, and I had such a black and white view of how revelation works that there was no room for error or there was no room for understanding, uh, different interpretations or my own thoughts mixed with revelation or any of these things that it could have been. And there was no answers. It was like all of a sudden the heavens were closed. And so needless to say, I just, lost, I lost my faith. And I found myself at that point. And that is where I started to really deeply, truly understand being empathetic towards others. That's what it took was me being shunned by God, in my opinion. Because then I could finally look at others and just be like, I know what you're going through and how you feel and how you feel alone. And it could be, you know, who cares what the reason was, whether they were gay or whether they, you know, were just recently divorced or, or whether they were struggling with, you know, anything, whatever they're struggling with confidence, fear, hope, weight, anything like whatever the, the point of shame and struggle was, I just felt like I, I had points where I could relate and I could see it. It's like I started looking around at the world and just saw this whole new layer of people's struggles. And my judgments went out the window because I was, I was no better. Just so touched by that story, Mike. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it was it, it was well. It was really, really so difficult. Much shame around a feeling that a man in the church would have. That I'm sure, as you've shared the story, hundreds—I don't know, hundreds—but many have reached out to you and yeah. said, "Yeah, I've had some of those same feelings." There's so much shame around opening that. You're kind of the de-shamer. We had to call this episode the de-shaming episode. But just talk. <laughs> is that true? As you've shared yeah. this, have people sort of? shared with you that I've had some of these same feelings. Oh yeah. You, you would be blown away. It's so funny now because I've, I've actually, you know, to just make the story interesting, I've now been through that four times. I've been through four. I've been in the ward where four Bishop changes have happened four times since I was like, it's me. <laughs> and it never was. <laughs> and every single time I've had some wonderful conversations, um, with people where they've opened up. And funny enough, the first time somebody kind of opened up to me and said that they had that feeling they, they shared, they wanted to share it with me. I didn't, I didn't break. I didn't tell them. Well, I didn't, I didn't mention anything. So, honest of so, you. so that, yeah, no, no, not at that point. Like I was like, no, huh? Interesting. Because I, and my answer to them was, well, yeah, I did have a, a spiritual feeling that this was the right person to be called the person that was. And I did, but 
little did they know the reason I got that was because I was like dying inside of trying to understand. And that's the only revelation I got on it was, Hey, this person was meant to be it. And I was like, that's not the answer I was looking for. I, you told me I was, <laughs> you know? So it's like, Oh, Are there and, any church talks that have helped you. I'm vaguely remembering an elder Uchtdorf talk yeah. where men, you know, many will get this confirmation that they are to be called and, and it shows them that, that they are worth it, it. Yes, I, I remember that talk. I don't know if that talk. talk was helpful for you. It's the only it, talk I can remember that sort of talks about this. It was in some ways, but I will be honest. There has been nothing, truly nothing, that's ever been fully helpful. To me, this is that moment. You know what this is for me? It's like in the scriptures where Alma the, the older and Alma the younger are in bondage, right? And I think it was the, what is it? The Zoramites or something that are, that are basically the wicked priests of King Noah were uh, over them and putting these burdens on them. And it talks about how the burdens weren't lifted. They were just made stronger. This is in Mosiah. Maybe Alma. Sorry. I don't know. Um, no, it would have been Mosiah. This is like end of Mosiah. And, uh, and their experiences, like I, it's, it's not like the answer came quickly at all. And it wasn't like heavenly father ever made it easy. It just said they were made stronger. And I actually think that the reason that that was, that that happened where, where they were made stronger, it was through natural law of how things work, where when you work hard, when you're under hard burden, it's like a muscle, it becomes stronger. Right. And, and for, for this in particular, um, for me, there's never been answers, but I will tell you how I look at the scriptures now. And I can tell you how I look at people now. And I can tell you what I talk about when I talk about things in church and when I go and I do firesides and when I, when I speak in general, I talk about those that are, that are marginalized. And I talk about those who have lost their faith. And I talk about those that the world doesn't make sense for. And there is no answers because I get that. And so I think that my whole experience is, truly have just been because I've, I need to share. And so even to this day, I have no, I have no idea if it'll ever be fulfilled. I've kind of like, by being so open about it, it's almost as if I've accepted the fact that it won't, because the second you start talking about that, it pretty much is in, in my opinion, like a done deal. Like, you you know, you've came out on record, so you're you're not. That may be culturally true, but shouldn't be doctrinally true. Yeah, exactly. But culturally, from a cultural perspective, that would definitely be the culture of it. And I just realized that I don't care. Like, I don't care. I know I'm supposed to talk about this. I know I'm supposed to write about it. I know that I'm supposed to share the message. And I don't know why, but I'm doing it. I wrote a Facebook post a few years ago that I just Googled and found. It was so, the title of the Facebook post was, So Were You an AP on Your Mission? (laughs) And LDS Living picked it up. And I just, I want to read something that an institute teacher taught. An institute taught me the best scriptural account of someone who is qualified but not called was Jonathan, 
when Samuel is selected between him and David to replace Saul as the next king. Both Jonathan and David were wonderful candidates. Jonathan, Saul's son and a great leader, was the logical candidate to become king. After David was called, Jonathan stood by him. When Saul, his own father, wanted David killed, over and over he supported David. Perhaps the best male example in the scripture besides the Savior is Paul's definition of charity um, seeketh not her own. There are so many Jonathans among us in our congregations, fully qualified, what doing what Elder Uchtdorf taught and is lifting that piano where you stand talk. Let's work harder to hear their voice, value their service, help our young boys want to become Jonathans of tomorrow, creative a way of seeing so our young men measure their progress in life by developing Christ-like attributes, a strong relationship with the Savior, and honor your, their covenants. Yes, many will be called, and that is needed and wonderful, but can we see each other more by our Christ-like attributes and less by our leadership assignments and help link being worthy directly to things that we can control, which are the same things that lead to our eternal exaltation? Yeah, it's very true. So it's very true. I love the, the Jonathan principle that that institute teacher taught me. Uh, but gosh, thanks for having the courage to share that. That takes a lot of guts. Um, some people come yeah. out as LGBT on the podcast, and that's very de-shaming. But there's a lot of shame around lots of different things in our culture, and that is one of them. Yeah, it's a big. And, it's a big and one. I would guess. It's a big one. You know, I've. And for people that maybe never have the impression they're to be called, but are never called to just go to church and have be in their sixties and seventies and knowing those assignments aren't coming, and there's other elders and the used to be the high priest quorum that have had those assignments. I know they probably. I don't think anybody should feel like a second class citizen because of the way callings have come or not come, or their voice is any less important. Uh, but I think culturally we have a lot of work to do. But people like you, uh, Mike, that have the ability to talk about that and de-shame it and have a conversation about that, that's awesome. Oh, I appreciate it's really that. really awesome. Talk about, in closing, um, who do you want to read the book? Well, everyone. Well, of course. <laughs> you know, I think, I think there's, there's a few people that this is really for. One... Um, I think anyone who is gay and who has children has to read this because it's has one children thing. children or children that are just children, any children? Has children. Like okay. any, anyone gay so who has a kids. Like, book. Well, well, here's why. Because they need. Oh, if you're I gay think, and have children. Yeah. I'm okay. saying, I'm saying like there is no information out there for what it's like for a child of someone who is gay. There's just, there's nothing like church or otherwise. There's maybe like one support group that kind of functions in a few large cities across America, but it's just not a subject that there's much research on. And any of the research that's been done has like very concluded hardly anything. You know, there's, there's studies that you can bend in each way, direction and everything at the end of the day, like as as someone who is gay wants to be understood and accepted, they need to really, really try to, to help their children understand. And I, I mean, I did zero counseling. I did, 
I just, I didn't have any of those support things or anybody to talk to. And there needed to be a safe place for any type of opinion. And I do worry that somebody that is gay, that has children, um, is so worried about making sure that their kids accept them, that they don't allow their kids room to just the same as a church parent wouldn't want their kids to be off of the covenant path. They don't want their kids to grow up to not accept them. But like you have to give your kids freedom to just figure things out. And, and so I think that's one important group. I think the other important group for would be anyone with anyone that, that has a gay family member, because here I am while I wasn't gay, I was very part of this family that was, and, and seeing how our family was treated between both sets of parents is a very powerful lesson. And I think there's lots to learn there. And then beyond that, anyone, uh, who has just, who has shame. I think my book largely to your point is about shame. I think it's this process of uncovering it and, and letting it go. And like the thing I desire more than anything else from that book is that people will feel free to share their story that they don't have to hide. And, um, there's a talk elder Ugdorf it's called uh, on being genuine or on um, being genuine. And he shares this story about, you know, some people treat church like a car dealership, a brand new car dealership where we're going to show off the latest and greatest models. Right. And that's what we do when we go to church. We try to be perfect and we look perfect. We act perfect. We want to have our kids sit perfect. Like everything needs to look good. And we hold ourselves together and we're, we're trying to look this like point of perfection to show that the gospel works. And he, and yet he says, really church is like a repair shop where you bring in your old clunker or something, right? And it needs fixed. And we should be not so afraid to show our dents and our bruises and our struggles and our challenge. Now let's talk about where this came from in the old manual teaching no greater calling they had this one statement that was like, don't share your past transgressions as you teach. Okay. Funny enough, when teaching the savior's way manual came out, guess what was admitted from that, that statement. It's no longer in the teaching manual. And at about that same time, that's when the church started putting out these videos that you would see on, on, you know, at the time LDS.org and now church of Jesus Christ that showed real people and their real struggles, whether it be with pornography, whether it be with homosexuality, whatever it was, like they, they were talking about themselves with their name, not like blurred out to where you couldn't see who it was. And they were sharing their, their things. And so culturally, when, when we had this other approach, it was like, we took that 10 steps too far and just said, well, we can never show any signs of weakness or anything. Right. And, and now all of a sudden, that is not the case, but we're not talking about it enough. We're not allowing people to just say what, it's, what it is. And so, like, I'll tell you, best example, and this is what I want church to be like for everybody. A week ago, or two, it was a couple weeks ago, we're in Sunday school. We're talking about forgiving others. Relief Society president stands up and is like, you know, 
I've, you know, there's been a couple of people in church who've offended me and I've learned to forgive them and kind of, kind of like an average story that we would say, you know, and it was good. But then we had an, we had this like person, a friend, what do they call it? It's not investigators anymore. I don't even know what they call them. Yeah. There's a new term it's like, for that. It's like friends or something. Yeah. Well, anyhow, this guy that was like at church, that was a really cool guy, um, just recently out of jail was, was in our ward. And he's like, yeah, I totally know what you mean. Like this one guy stabbed me four times, stabbed me four times, left me to die. And I had to learn to forgive him. And that was really hard. And like the class, like we're sitting back and everybody's kind of looking at him like, yeah, that's, that's deep, man. And like, he was totally into the lesson and that's church. That's how it's supposed to be. That's bearing one another's burdens. That is mourning with those that mourn. It's when you can have like this total Molly Mormon, for lack of a better term. What, what do we call them now? Lolly Latter-day Saints. I have, I don't think there's a term. So, um, anyways, like this person that's grown up that, that maybe hasn't had, um, as colorful of life experiences, share a story. And then another person that has been through literally the fires and depths of hell, and yet they can share stories and relate to each other on the same gospel principle. That is what our words need to be like. And we have to make it safe for that to happen. And so like now I tell my mom this even, I'm like, mom, I want you to come to church. I do. I, she knows it. She knows I still want her to come, but I no longer wish that she would come as a straight woman. I want her to come as the beautiful, loving, lesbian mom that she is. And I want her to be there so bad and to feel loved and for her to feel safe. And that is my goal. That is my desire. And that's why I wrote the book. I have tears in my eyes. I love that. We'll just end on that. Um, you know, I encourage, I think this book is broader than I originally understood it to be. It's, you know, the title is My Dad's a Muslim, My Mom's a Lesbian. And I'm a Latter-day Saint by Mike Ramsey, but my impression, I haven't read this book. Mike's just given me a signed copy tonight. Is This is a book about parenting. This is a book about relationships. This is a book about keeping the family circled together. This is about heart talking about needed hard things and de-shaming things that we shouldn't have shame. So we come together as the body of Christ. And I'm deeply moved by this podcast with you, Mike, and you have a really unique life background, <laughs> yeah. as you know, and I think it's, you know, I think all these pieces are in place for you to have a very unique life mission, and that started already, but you're a young guy, and I think you're going to be in this space for the rest of your life and have a unique voice in our church and society and beautiful life lessons in your family that because of your experience and you and Hillary coming together and now forming this family, there's just great um, future stories to be told. Any just last thoughts you'd like to share? You can't top the last one you just said. So, but <laughs> you if know. you just want to any share anything you'd like to share, and then we'll close. Um, just the last thing, uh, as as far as the acknowledgments for the book, I just I put to its to uh, or you know who it's for or what what I would hope people would get from it. And the statement is just very simple. It is, you know, for those who are different, share your story. 
And so uh, I guess I'll just end on that, that um, I hope you do. I hope you share your story. I've My story is a very unique one, but yet it's the same story that all of us have, which is we're just trying to find our God and ourselves. And the experiences that we have help to do that. And so this is mine. This is this is me sharing my story of how I found God and how I'm continuing to find myself. That's great. We started with prayer, and we hope you felt the spirit as Mike shared some of this I have. And Mike Ramsey, thank you for joining us on an episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Everybody go and, and buy Mike's book. It'll help all of us talk about Mike's book, share Mike's book. Um, and we'll sign off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler.